0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. It's
2: so funny that it all started off of me like bullshitting someone in the bar, but then going, oh, wait a second, (laughs) maybe I should actually do this. And then really diving in and teaching myself to write.
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design
1: Matters with Debbie Millman. For
0: 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Sean Hader talks about the satisfactions of making TV and movies that have an impact.
2: Oh, there's a cultural shift happening and my story got to be a part of that cultural shift.
0: If you're looking for something great to watch, just look for something Sean Hayter has worked on, and you won't go wrong. She's written and directed two films, Tallulah, and more recently, Coda, which not only earned her an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, The film was also awarded the 2022 Oscar for Best Picture. She's won a Peabody Award for her work on the television show Men of a Certain Age and worked on three seasons of Orange is the New Black. Her most recent effort is as the showrunner and executive producer of the Apple TV show Little America, which just started its second incredible season. Sean Hader, welcome to Design Matters.
2: I'm so happy to be here talking to you.
0: Sean, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about the very special way you celebrated at your sixth birthday party.
2: <laughs> um, i It's so funny. I, I was like, you've done your research, Debbie. I used to throw these birthday parties. I think I was a little older than six. But I would throw these birthday parties where I would basically write a full screenplay almost. I would write character descriptions for all the guests that were coming to my party and everyone had to come in character and I would get murdered at some point in the party and I would go upstairs and put on like a bald cap and glasses and come back as the detective and interrogate all my guests and solve my own murder at the party. Um, (laughs) And it was weeks of preparation I mean it was I I was probably more dedicated and focused about that you know my birthday parties than I'd ever been about anything before and since but it's so funny looking back because you know both of my parents were artists I came from a very artistic family but I think i Came to directing later, like not later, I was in my 20s, but it was, you know, I wanted to be an actor and I was really pursuing that. And sort of when you look back and you go, well, I was clearly a director from the moment I was able to plan a birthday party because that was where I chose to put my energy was into these massive productions and organizing and, and running the show. And I still have friends who joke and talk about that time. And actually, for my 40th birthday party, some writer friends of mine and my sister dug up an old script that I think was from my 10-year-old party, and they recreated the whole thing for my 40th birthday party. So everyone was in character as these characters that I'd written when I was 10 years old, and they came and reenacted the whole thing, and it was totally amazing.
0: That sounds wonderful. I can't help but think since... I've read about this. It's out there that someone else read about this when you first put it out there and stole the idea for Glass Onion. Just just saying.
2: I mean, it's possible. I do think, you know, the murder mystery part, I actually probably think the idea for it had come from the fact that my parents probably attended some kind of murder mystery party and I was like, oh, I'm on this. Like, this should be my thing. But the interrogating the guests part, like, there's all these pictures of me truly wearing a bald cap and, like, being this very serious detective and no one could break character. And uh, yeah, I I was a pretty bossy kid. I'm surprised that my friends put up with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were born and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you just mentioned your parents. Your dad escaped from Hungary as a refugee during the war and came to the United States with nothing. Your mom is from Wales. How did they first meet?
2: They met at, they met on Friday the 13th, which I've always held as a lucky day because my parents met on that day. They met at a gallery opening. I My mom is an artist. She came to go to graduate school for art. And she, my father, yes, was a refugee who escaped during the Hungarian Revolution. And my dad was living in Cambridge or in Boston. I think at the time my mom was teaching at art at RISD and they met at a gallery opening. And my mom came up to my dad and told him a dirty joke that was going around the party. Um, and they, you know, met and fell in love. And and it was always this amazing kind of intersection of two very different cultures. I think my Welsh family and my Hungarian family. And, and I think being a first-generation kid, I mean, obviously, Little America and my interest in that show and work on that show was very much driven by... Uh, you know, understanding all of the different immigrant experiences that exist coming to this country and how varied and specific and intimate those stories are. But yes, I had a sort of wacky hippie artist upbringing where we had a hammock in every room in my house (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was as um, one does. As one does. <laughs> when I got older, I was like, "You guys don't have a hammock in your living room? What's wrong with you? Like, aren't there hammocks everywhere?" But yeah, no. I had. I grew and I grew up in Cambridge, which was an amazing place to grow up in too. I think as a city, it was a really progressive, exciting, cool childhood.
0: Your parents have worked collaboratively to create major public art installations all over the United States. They've been doing that for well over 30 years. They've been married for 50. You said that they're an intense couple who fight like crazy but are still madly in love. And I'm wondering if you could share what you attribute to their longevity together.
2: I was actually just thinking about this question because I was— sort of trying to articulate like what what I think makes a lasting marriage to somebody you know my husband and I have been together for 18 years which is not not 50 but it feels long and my parents have have and always have had a very similar sense of adventure and what excites them about living and being alive and and what what adventure means to them or what what's fulfilling. And I I think I was saying this actually to my husband the other day, because I was sort of like talking about, we never thought before we got married to kind of get together and talk about our value systems. It was like, you know, I'm in love with you, you're in love with me. But I I really do think lasting relationships feel like they are based on shared value systems of what brings happiness or what what it brings fulfillment. And I think my parents were both very adventurous people who loved to travel, loved to travel in kind of a hardcore way where I remember being a kid and like, you know, traipsing around Mexico and finding random places to stay. You know, we never had organized trips. We never had, it was always, you know, renting a car and then realizing that car had no brakes and breaking down in some village and finding a place to stay. And and that was sort of a real sense of, adventure and travel, but then also a commitment to creativity and making things and wanting to explore the world and use experiences to make art, you know, use your experience of a place or experience of a culture. I think what my mom does as a public artist has very much infiltrated the way that I work because a lot of her work is very site-specific and it's kind of, finding a place, investigating the place and researching it and digging up history and finding interesting embedded connections and then building a piece that almost makes the place more about itself. That kind of deep dive or research or or way of falling down the rabbit hole of a story and uncovering what it's about is very much the way that I work. And so it's interesting to look back and think about but it was always a part of my life. Like my mom's studio was a very alive space for me. And so much of my childhood was spent as she was working in her studio and I was in a corner messing around with clay or whatever materials she wasn't using at that point. And I always understood that her art was as important as me. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean that in any way of being like, she loved her art more than me. I knew she loved me more than anything, but that, art was a part of life. And that's what you do is you make things and you figure out what you have to say and you put it out there in the world. And that's not diminishing to your relationships or your family. That's something that actually helps your family thrive and that they can participate in. And I feel like I'm trying to give that to my kids too.
0: I know your parents forbade you from watching television when you were a kid.
2: (laughs) This is true.
0: Where and and sort of how did you develop your sense of storytelling? Was it from books or just books. sort of
2: born with it? It was all books and and I was an absolutely obsessive reader and my daughter is too. My daughter just turned 9 2 weeks ago, but she is never without a book. I mean, we, I, have become the father in Matilda. I don't know if you know that story, but I'm literally like, put the books away. Why can't you watch telly like a normal child? Um, (laughs) because she, she, it's just an escape for her. You know, I'm like, go brush your teeth. And I turn around, she's like standing in the middle of the living room with a book in her face. And, but I recognize that feeling that I see in her because I was, like that. I mean, books were such a complete world to me. Yes, an escape, but also so exciting and fulfilling. And I I have a friend now who was friends with me when I was six or seven. And she was joking recently with me of like, she's like, I remember calling you up to hang out for like a play date. And I said, I can't. And she said, why not? And I said, I'm reading. And she was like, why reading? Like, who uses reading as an excuse to not meet up and hang out? But that's how it felt to me. And I wasn't allowed to watch TV. My parents ended up getting a television because they couldn't get a babysitter. (laughs) Like, (laughs) everyone refused to babysit for us because they were like, I'm not going to your house. Like, I can't watch TV. And so then they finally did get a TV that I think my mom found in, like, someone's trash. She, like, fully trash-picked somebody and got their old TV. And then it just sat at the bottom of our stairs on the floor and there was no chair to watch it like basically the tv was like plugged in at the bottom of the stairs and you kind of sat on the floor like in front of the stairs if you wanted to watch tv and i was like what a funny thing and i think i was allowed to watch two hours of tv a week finally and i had to choose very wisely because it was so limited what did you choose I think it was like the Cosby show and Family Ties was like an hour. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think an hour was Dallas actually for a while. And then I was like, oh, if I can keep my parents engaged for long enough, they'll get hooked on Falcon Crest and then I can stay up another <laughs> hour. <and watch> Falcon <laughs> Crest. I can't believe That's that I awesome. like, used like an hour of my two hours on Dallas, but I do think that that was it for a while and I would sneak I grew up in like a four family house so it was kind of a row house in Cambridge with a shared backyard there were kids that lived next door who were my friends and I would sneak over to their house and I would watch TV in their basement and I remember being like 30 and I was over at their house and their mom Jody was like "Sean do your parents know that you're here?" and I'm like "Jody I'm 30 years old like it's okay that <laughs> it's okay that I'm at your house I'm not sneaking TV but it was like my mom would come over and bust me watching TV and now my parents watch a lot of TV which I feel like is hilarious that now they're just they've fully embraced it
0: well they have to they have to be watching little america exactly exactly but I think
2: no I I I loved movies and I loved stories and I did love television I think But my entree to storytelling was through books. Now, it's like I don't see a lot of difference even between TV and movies. It's all storytelling to me. And it's like you find the medium to best tell your story, and then that's where you do it.
0: You went to Carnegie Mellon and studied film and acting. Um, And while you were there, I understand people told you that you should be directing because you had such an eye for performance and for people. What was so interesting to you about acting at that point?
2: I loved the theater experience, you know, coming together with a group of people, having this very intense rehearsal process and performance and the and the connection between live audience and an immediate response, which I think I still now working in film, I'm always sort of trying to recreate like how do you keep the audience in mind? Like how do you know how things are going to land, because I loved that in theater, that there was this immediate dialogue between the audience and the performers. I just loved it. So I was a total theater kid, and I went to Carnegie Mellon to study acting and loved Shakespeare and classical theater and really wanted to do that. And it's funny, Carnegie Mellon was a really intense place and I don't know if it still is, but it was like there was a cut system and, you know, I don't remember how many kids started, but you knew that half your class would be cut by the end of the four years and it was very competitive and intense. And we would have these conferences at the end of every semester and it was always, there was always so much tension and anxiety around these conferences because you thought, you know, am I doing well enough to stay in the program And I remember I had a teacher who said to me, you know, I really think you might be a director. And I was heartbroken because I thought, oh, does this mean he doesn't think I'm an actor? And I don't think he meant it that way. I think he was watching me in class giving notes on people's scenes and watching people perform in the way that I kind of watched my classmates and responded to my classmates. I do think in a way... Even as an actor, I was always a little bit outside of myself, kind of watching the big picture or wanting to be telling the story as opposed to just participating in living the story. And so it did feel like a very natural move for me when I first started directing. I thought, oh, this is a better fit for me. You know, you get to be a part of telling the whole story.
0: After you graduated, you moved to Manhattan and began to act in television shows, including The Sopranos, Law & Order SVU, which is one of my favorites. I think I've seen every episode, including yours, about three times. (laughs) Um, What was the auditioning process like for you when you first started acting?
2: Auditioning is horrible. It's just horrible. I think because what I loved about acting was being able to step into another person's life or experience. It's sort of the same part of me that gets fulfilled by being a writer and director. It's, you know, when I'm writing, I feel like, Oh, what a, what a way to just kind of, we only get this one life to live. And in a way, the scope of that life is always going to be limited by who you are, you know, how you grew up or what your surroundings are. And so the idea that like, you could get to have all of these different experiences. You could step into the, you know, being Hedda Gabler, and then you could step into being Lady Macbeth and get to feel what that feels like to have done all these things or had all these experiences. And so I think, in a way, Carnegie Mellon was really like, you can be anything, you can play anything, and you sort of pushed yourself in every direction and you went through voice and speech and you could do every accent and you could kind of, and then you get out in the world and you go to these auditions to play 22 year old girl on blah, blah, blah. And, and it was almost like I didn't know how to be myself. Like I'd learned all these skills and I was like, Oh, I think now they want me to be me, but I almost haven't been trained to do that. Or that's been trained out of me somehow. That's what people respond to, especially on film, is people that just feel like authentically themselves in a way, unless you're Daniel Day-Lewis. And then you get to be the person who disappears into roles. But a lot of the time when you're starting out, it's really the essence of you that the world is responding to. And I think when you've gone to drama school and you've kind of filled yourself with all these ideas of like, "But but I'm so malleable and I can be all these things. And it's like, but what is actually the thing that I have to offer? It was hard to be a young woman and suddenly faced with, like, what that game was of how you succeed as an actor when you're a young woman. I recently saw the film Brainwashed. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a documentary um, by Nina Menkes about basically how the male gaze has dictated, you know, all of cinematic language for a really long time. I had this kind of epiphany watching that film that I was so uncomfortable with being objectified in the way that I knew I needed to be as an actress at that age, that it was hard. It's like, yeah, I did Law & Order and then got raped on Law & Order and then I got raped on Numbers and then I did Sopranos. But the original part I'd auditioned for on Sopranos was a stripper in the club who had to be topless and then got killed with a brick. You know, and I remember, you know, auditioning for that part and going, oh my God, I don't think I can do this part. And then they gave me this other part, and that was my role on Sopranos, was not that stripper part, but that's what I'd gone in for. It was kind of hard to be like, oh, these are the stories that are out there, and this is what's available to me. And isn't there more to me than this? Don't I have something else to offer besides walking around with my tits out in front of. (laughs) <laughs> the, yeah. all the all the lead characters on this show. So, yeah, I think it was a little heartbreaking, actually, to to get out in the world and realize what the business was. And that was part of my transition into, oh, wait, what if I could tell these stories? And what if I could have some control over the narrative and what's going out in the world and write great parts for women and create roles for women the way, based on the women that I knew, or my experience of being a woman that felt much more compelling and complicated than anything I was seeing or participating in.
0: I love that your first foray into professional writing seems to have utilized your acting skills. <laughs> in that you told this group of men that you were a screenplay writer or that you had a treatment um, while you were bartending, <laughs> um, and and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of that story with our listeners because I think it took took a lot of balls to do something like that. And this is when you moved to Los Angeles, I believe, right? I wasn't entirely sure if that had happened. In Where did LA you find that York?
2: story? I'm like, when did I tell um, that story? It's so funny. Um, <laughs> yes, I had moved out to LA. You know, I went to New York. I had been in this off Broadway show for over a year, and I'd gone to New York with this kind of idealized, like, I want to be a theater actor. I'm not moving to LA because I want to do theater. And then I did this off Broadway show, and it just ran, and you know, it was like eight shows a week for over a year. And I thought, oh, maybe theater isn't. <laughs> The thing I thought it was. Um, And I had moved out to L.A. And I was already interested in writing because I think when I first moved out to L.A., there was, I don't know if you know the Naked Angels Company, but it was a New York theater company that was also had a presence in L.A. and would do these nights called Tuesdays at Nine where it was at a bar, it was at St. Nick's Pub, and writers would come and actors would come and writers would bring in like 10 pages of whatever they were working on. And actors would come and cold read the pages. And it was just like a really fun way to hear your work out loud and for everyone to kind of socialize and a training ground, really, for everybody. And so I'd been going to Tuesdays at 9 as an actor, and I had been thinking about writing and kind of going... You know, writing was always something that I loved and did for me, and it was my own outlet, but it was never something that I thought, oh, I should be a writer or put this into the world. And then, yes, I was bartending at this place called Le Deux, and it was super scene-y. It was like they had this Monday night party that was always very celebrity-heavy and, you know, hard to get into, and and so there was this thing that would happen whenever I was bartending, and people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm an actor. And they'd kind of go, oh, like, have a little pity on their face and give me, like, sad eyes and be like, "How the, how's that going for you? I got so tired of that look, (laughs) like that whole reaction. And yes, one night there were these guys at the bar and they said, what do you do? And I just said, I'm a writer. And they said, Oh, what do you write? I said, Oh, I'm working on this movie. And I just, I told them the story of this crazy thing that had happened to my neighbor. This was honestly just me entertaining myself trying to get through my night. And the guy was like, well, that's, that's actually really good. Do you have a treatment based on that? Like, I'm actually a producer. I would love to take you out. And I'm thinking this guy is full of shit and he's hitting on me or I don't know what's, you know, but I was like, yeah, yeah, I have a treatment. And he's like, oh, well you should call me. And so he kind of gave me my, his card and I threw it in my tip bucket. And I remember at the end of the night I was like counting my tips and I came across his card and I'm like, this guy is probably a creep and I should not call him and whatever. But it got me thinking about that story. And I was like, no, actually I should. And I should write a treatment for that and I should call this guy and see if it's legit. And so I did. And I wrote a treatment and he was legit. And he took me out and we like pitched it around town and no one ended up buying it. But it really got me going, oh, wait, this is a story. And then I wrote my first movie that I ever wrote was that film. Because I was like, wait, this is <gasps> oh, good. Oh, <laughs> that, was, that was my question. Was that Mother? No, it was not Mother. I wrote, oh, I wrote okay. this screenplay that never got made, but it was the first screenplay I wrote. And... I didn't know anything about writing a movie, but I just kind of was like, well, I've come this far. Now I've written a treatment and I've kind of pitched it and I think I should write this. So I wrote this movie and I was really good friends with Zach Quinto. I still am. He was my good friend from college. And I sent it to Zach, who, by the way, at that time was also working as a waiter at the 101 Cafe. And I said, will you read this? I wrote a movie and he's like okay and he and he read it and he called me and he's like sean i think you're a writer Mm. and he was kind of the first person to say he's like this is like you don't know anything about doing this and this is the first thing that came out of you and i really think you're a writer and so i ended up writing some more screenplays I, i ended up writing mother the Short and applied to AFI Directing Workshop for Women and got into that program. But it was really so funny that it all started off of me like bullshitting someone in the bar, but then going, oh, wait a second, <laughs> maybe I should actually do this. And then really diving in and teaching myself to write. I, I never was trained to do that, but I I was always part of writers' groups. You know, I always I did a lot of labs and workshops and I was I was trying to kind of like build my film school experience because I didn't have that kind of formal training. And I really was hungry to learn from everyone I knew who was actually doing it.
0: Your experience writing Mother was based on an encounter that you had that actually inspired your writing that movie um, from when you were a nanny. I'm wondering if you can share that experience as well.
2: Yes, this is all around the same time. So I'm in my 20s and I've just moved out to LA and I'm working every job you can imagine to try to make money. So I, I'm i driving like a $500 Buick that I bought <laughs> in New York and drove across the country. I can't even believe it made wow, it. Wow, um, I can't either. <laughs> uh, no, it's insane. It was like such a hilarious like velour bench seats and it was like an Drug dealing uncle car. So I moved out to LA and I was working as a babysitter at all the four star hotels and I was bartending at night at all these places and waiting tables and doing whatever. And I started, I was a babysitter at all of these really fancy hotels in LA. So I'd be going to the Bel Air Hotel and the Four Seasons and glimpsing the wealth in LA and coming in and kind of having this little window into this whole world and culture that I'd never been a part of before. And also that very upstairs downstairs thing of being the help and being a fly on the wall for so many strange things that people kind of assumed you weren't paying attention to because you were there as the nanny And I had a really, really weird experience at the Four Seasons, actually, in the penthouse of the Four Seasons, where this mother had come to the hotel to have an affair, and she couldn't bring her nanny because the nanny would tell the husband and rat her out, and she'd never been alone with her toddler before, and she was kind of having this meltdown. And it became very clear that she'd hired me to kind of be her confidant and friend more than I was even there to watch the kid. I mean, by the end of the night, she, like, came home, was wasted, passed out on the ground, drunk, and the baby was just, like, wandering the room with no crib in the room. And I, like, didn't know what to do with this toddler. And the hotel would not intervene in the situation. They were like, well, this woman is a paying customer and we can't do anything. And if you want to call CPS, you can call Child Protective Services, but we can't do anything about it. And I thought, I'm only in this woman's life for the night. I don't know her story. I know what that can do once you start that cycle of getting someone's kid taken away. And so I ended up having them send up a crib and I put the baby in the crib and I just left. And I was, I cried the whole way home because I just thought like, this is so bizarre. And I wrote this scene, which to me felt like a horrible, tragic scene. And I brought it into Tuesdays at Nine, this group that I was a part of, and actors read it out loud, and it was so funny. Like, once we heard it out loud, it was so dark and so funny and yet so tragic. And the fact that I'd been crying when I wrote it, but that then it was so comedic. I was like, oh, there's something really interesting here. So that was the film that I applied to AFI with, and that became Mother, and then that eventually... You know, Mother did really well and ended up going to Cannes, and then that blossomed out into the feature of Tallulah. But yes, it was all based on this kind of weird experience that I had.
0: What what I thought was really interesting about the transition from Mother to Tallulah was the name. The only one of the three main characters in Tallulah is not the mom. And I'm wondering what sort of transition that was psychologically for you to call the film Tallulah and not a version of Mother, given that Tallulah was the only character not a mother.
2: It's interesting. I mean, Tallulah was such a journey in terms of uncovering what that film was about and what that story, what I was writing about. Because as I tell you this story, I was. In my early 20s, I was living in L.A. I had this tiny studio apartment and this crap car, and I was so judgmental of these moms that I was encountering. I really thought, Ugh, you know, they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, yes, there were bad moms, but there were also moms that were probably harried and overwhelmed and dealing with stuff. And it's it's really easy when you're young to come from a place of knowing better. And I definitely wrote... Mother from this place. And then I wrote to Lula, I'd say the first draft of it was a very judgmental indictment of this mother character, Carolyn. It was, you know, some women should not be mothers, I would say, would be my thesis hmm. when I started writing that film. And then the movie took me nine years to get made. And over the course of that time, I was growing up and I was having experiences and not only growing up as a writer and director, you know, I was writing on Orange is New Black and Men of a Certain Age. and But also, during the time it took me to get the film made, I became a mother. And I was someone who always loved kids, was great with kids, had kind of that magical babysitter energy of coming in and being able to charm children immediately and be super fun and was so cocky going into being a mom because i knew it was something that i kind of was inherently had in me and then my daughter had colic and never slept and completely rocked my world and i was so lost and i felt like i didn't know how to do it and i was failing and i was just a i was really an underslept, complete basket case, I'd say, for the first year of my daughter's life. And also juggling, like, working, you know, like, driving to the writer's room and feeling like I had to pretend like I wasn't functioning on 40 minutes of sleep from the night before. And and I completely rewrote the film. I was like, this movie is not about indicting this mother. This movie is about the complexities of motherhood and the dark secret feelings that nobody can share about being a mom. And so it is interesting in a way, like I think you're calling out the name and I I do think the movie was named in that early stage. and, And I do think it ended up being a film about all these secret motherhood conversations that I think weren't being had. And, that it's in all of us to be a mother and we find different ways to do it and yet no one knows how to do it and it's an imperfect journey and all of that and, I, and it's interesting I don't know, I haven't really thought about that till you said it but why that title feels like it was the movie was named early on and then the film evolved so much over the time that I was rewriting it and rewriting it and so when I finally made it it really was a movie about motherhood but I don't know if it started that way
0: My favorite dialogue in Tallulah is when Tammy Blanchard's character asks Allison, Janney's character, if she's a horrible person. And Allison's character responds, We're all horrible. We're all people. There's so much sort of unconditional compassion in that response. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the notion of what horrible really means in our evaluation of being people.
2: I love that line too. And I think that line sums up so much about the characters that interest me and the stories that interest me. I really love good people making bad choices. Like I think we all contain multitudes and have potential to be horrible and have potential to be empathetic and beautiful. And I love the unconditional love of that moment because I think particularly with women and around motherhood and around all of it, like there's so... I wrote a whole article about like mom shaming after I made Tallulah because it was something, especially when you have young children, it just seems so present in the world, you know, and I think there's so much self-doubt that comes along with being a mother where you're constantly like, oh, am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to, just happened to me the other day, my daughter has been like lying a lot. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like the lying. And how do you respond to the lying? And I had a friend say, oh, you're never supposed to call out the lying. You're never supposed to say that's a lie. You know, that's part of them evolving kind of their higher level thinking and figuring out how to be functioning human. I was like, oh, you're never supposed to call out the lying. And it sent me into the spiral of, should I have not said something about that? You know, because I think it's so vulnerable to be a parent and you're constantly questioning, what am I doing that's going to screw up my kid and put them in therapy later in life? (laughs) And so I guess I just love the compassion, particularly between women in that moment of just it's okay to be shitty. Sometimes it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. It's okay. That is part of the ride that we're on being human. And it's kind of about recognizing it and acknowledging it and changing it if you need to change it. But like, it's a part of the human experience. And I think the stories I'm most drawn to involve very messy people and messy families and a certain kind of dysfunction that still contains warmth. <laughs> like you said, I mean, you, you were talking about my parents at the beginning of this. It's like, those two things can exist together. The dysfunction and the love and the messiness and the connection in the middle of all of it.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the
0: Making and Adobe Express for their support. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. I have to just talk briefly about your time on Orange is the New Black. You, you wrote for the show from 2013 to 2016 and wrote my all-time favorite episode titled Lesbian Request Denied, which <laughs> was the third episode of season one. And episode one and episode two were great. They sort of set the stage for what the whole the whole show was going to be about in so many ways. But... I remember seeing episode three and thinking, okay, this show is really going to make a difference. It's so layered in so many ways, that episode. And the actresses, Laverne Cox and Uzo Aduba, feature prominently in this episode. And I think many people, including myself, were introduced to them for the first time at that moment. They were both nominated for Emmys for their roles. Laverne Cox was the first transgender actor to be nominated for an acting award at the Emmys. What was it like writing for these characters? What gave you the sense that, for example, in order to really see Uzo Adubo's character, she needed to pee on the ground in front of Taylor Schilling's character? One of the great moments in television time.
2: Oh my God, I have to tell you about that moment. I want to get to this larger point, but that was so funny because we built a P-Rig for Uzo. And the first time she did it, I will never forget that. She sort of like crouched down and I remember shooting it and the P-Rig like kind of just exploded in the gushiest way ever and we the whole set like fell over dying laughing and Uzo just died laughing too it was like a massive horse pee like coming out of this little woman um that episode was amazing and that show was amazing I think first of all we didn't really know what we were working out Netflix, wasn't even a thing. You know, I remember getting that job and being like, what Netflix is this like a, is this like an internet show? Like, what is this thing? It was <laughs> streaming was not a thing. You know, they didn't have, they had us in house of cards. We didn't know what it was. Obviously I knew Genji's work. I was a big admirer of her and fan of her and she is wonderful. And one of the things Genji did, which was so beautiful, Um, which now I try to embody as a showrunner, was just giving so much ownership of the show to her writers. Like, I think we all felt so invested and so creatively involved and, like, to feel that kind of ownership when it is not your show that you've created, but you feel like you've been given the freedom to, hey, go create this character. Especially with Laverne's character, Sophia, There wasn't any trans representation on TV at that time. Transparent had not come out. Like, there was nothing to go and look at as an example of this. I felt a huge responsibility to get it right because I thought, oh my God, this is going to be this trans character on TV. And I am not trans. I don't have that experience. Like, for me to write this, I need to majorly research this character. And so I did, I talked to so many trans women and, you know, went to the trans support group in LA and the, you know, and just really interviewed so many people and talked to them. And, and then it was so important to me, both with that character and with Suzanne, who was initially crazy eyes, you know, and there was kind of this, this kind of one note element to the ideas of both of those characters. It's like, okay, there's the kind of the, oh, it's a trans character in prison. So it's a former man in a woman's prison. There's so much scandal that can happen around that. And I was really invested in like, I I need this to be a central character that we're following and to understand her as a complex human on every level. And I remember having this conversation with the leader of, like, the uh, trans support group in L.A. And she said, does this character have to be in prison? And I was like, well, she does have to be in prison because they're all in prison. It's a (laughs) show about prison. And she said, oh, it's just such a, you know, whenever trans people are represented, they're represented, you know, as criminals. or," And she said, so I, I don't love that she's in prison. So can she be innocent? She should be innocent of her crime. And I remember entertaining that idea and thinking, no. And in fact, like understanding her and why she made the choices she made. And this idea that she has to be pure to somehow counter trans representation that had existed, that she has to be like this angel who's all good. And I'm like, this isn't what this is. This is about making this character really complex and understanding why she made the choices she made. And giving her many dimensions and aspects. And and so that was just a really interesting journey. And I remember being very fearful, putting that episode out in the world and thinking that I hoped that people could feel the work and the intention behind it. And then it was so beautiful to watch what happened with Laverne and with Uzo, you know, but especially watching Laverne. And I remember like a year later seeing her on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. And going, oh my God, like how beautiful. Like I remember watching her audition tape and being like, oh my God, look at her. Like this, it, this is who Sophia is. So I don't know. It's really beautiful when as a storyteller, you get to feel like a cog in the wheels of change, you know, like, that you set the pebble rolling somehow at the top of the hill and it picked up more pebbles and it became an avalanche. And then there was kind of this massive sea change. And it's not because of what you did, but you are a part of that. And it's, that is so fulfilling. And I definitely had that, I think, in relation to that episode and certainly with CODA of feeling like, oh, there's, there's a cultural shift happening and my story got to be a part of that cultural shift.
0: So CODA won last year's Best Film Oscar. I was so happy when that happened. Um, you also won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. And when you were first approached to direct CODA, you hadn't seen the original 2014 French film La Famille Uh the story CODA is based on. What made you interested in this particular story?
2: You know, I think it's always striking when you're presented with something and you think, oh, I I can't think of a film with a deaf family at the center of it. And the fact that that doesn't exist in the world felt like a driving force to put it in the world. You know, when I did watch La Famille Bellier, the character of the coda at the center was a very interesting, a coda as a child of deaf adults, and it's very interesting to me that most deaf people have hearing children and most deaf people are born to hearing parents. And so there's kind of this cultural divide that happens where a lot of times CODAs, you know, who are growing up with deaf parents in a way grow up more embedded in deaf culture than a lot of deaf people did as kids because they had hearing parents that maybe didn't sign or live within the deaf community. So that idea of someone who was kind of part of these two worlds and also part of neither and living in this limbo, you know, where they culturally kind of felt connected to a community that they actually aren't a part of, which is the deaf community. And I had a beautiful thing that a Coda friend said to me the other day when she was trying to talk about being a hearing person, growing up in a deaf family. And she said... I lived in the oppressor's body. So even though I was their child and I was this, I also represented the world that had been oppressive and horrible and exclusionary. And holding those things and holding that duality was like a really complicated thing to grow up with. So that was very intriguing to me in that character and exploring what that was. And having a teenage girl at the center where her feelings were not marginalized, her feelings were actually the stakes of the movie, (laughs) was exciting to me. And so all of those things, and then really the deep dive that I got to do with the deaf community, and it's changed my life. You know, it's changed my life not just as an artist, but it really has changed my life, period. There is this idea of like who should be writing what, which I think is very real, and those conversations need to be happening. And I was fully aware that I was a hearing person coming to this deaf story about a culture that was not mine. But what that meant is I had to come in as this very pure listener and know what I didn't know and really put a team around me of deaf collaborators both in front of and behind the camera But these moments that are almost embarrassing when you have them, you know, where like my production and designer and I set up the living room of this family. And I remember Anne walking onto set and going, No deaf family would ever set up their living room this way. You know, deaf spaces are circular. Everybody needs to see everybody else. Like the living room's not like centered on the TV in the same way, it's centered on like having a conversation with each other the couch would be facing where they could see the door. They would want to know who was coming in and out. So there were all these moments where you kind of went, oh shit, like, I'm such a dumbass. Why did I, what was I thinking with the furniture? But I had that push and pull. I had the people there as a team to kind of go, hey, no. And it was a really powerful, amazing experience to make that film, not just in the writing of it, but in the way we sort of reimagined what a set could be, the way we shot it, put it together, you know, even the year-long press tour, I think it was a very transformative experience for everyone involved in the film, especially me.
0: One of the really remarkable things about CODA was the way in which deafness was portrayed. Um, In the past, hearing characters spoke out loud the entire time, and you talked about Marley Matlin. In the 1986 film, Children of a Lesser God, a, a movie that she won an oscar for playing the role she played william hurt's character speaks all the lines out loud and you look back at a movie like that or even other other movies that are that are much more recent where the hearing character becomes the dominant character just because they are reciting or sharing the reality that the non-speaking person is having. Um, Instead, in CODA, you provide the audience with the experience of what it's like to really watch an ASL conversation taking place with the various sounds that you hear, the clothing, the the fingers moving, slapping. I know that you put a mic on Marley Matlin, who was surprised because she's usually not mic'd because you specifically wanted that physical experience.
2: You know, I think sound is very important to hearing people. And you watch people who haven't encountered an interpreter and a deaf person together before, and you will watch hearing people look at the interpreter as they're talking. As the deaf person is signing, they will look at the interpreter And then they will address their question or their answer to the interpreter because Mm -hmm. they're sort of drawn to the sound. You know, it's like, well, this is the person who's talking as opposed to this is the person that actually should be the interpreters there to voice the deaf person. So I'm watching it and I think it's almost like it's a process people have to go through to go, okay, let me... Become comfortable in this moment, giving my attention to the person who might not be actually speaking, and so I knew that if Ruby voiced her parents or if Ruby talked too much in the movie, hearing people would kind of glom onto that, or it's almost like a safety net like oh i feel I feel safer in this scene because I have this touchstone of this person speaking, so silence was a really big part of the movie for me, and figuring out. You know, yes, an audience will be uncomfortable for the first couple of scenes. A hearing audience will be. And they are going to have to get into a different rhythm and a different way of watching and listening visually as opposed to actually listening. And that's cool. And let me force the audience into that experience gradually. You know, I was sort of careful in the early parts of the movie to make sure That, you know, there would be an ASL scene and then there would be a music scene or a dialogue scene. And then we would sort of, and then towards the back half of the movie, I think there's six scenes in a row, which are all silent ASL scenes. Because at that point, I think the audience is fully immersed in this family and you don't even notice. And I loved that audience members came up to me after the movie and was like, I didn't even notice that I was watching ASL and someone even said to me, I felt like I was hearing Frank's Boston accent. And I'm like, yeah, he does have a Boston accent, you know, but he has it through sign. Um, And sound was so important in the intimacy of an ASL conversation where, you know, if you're angry and you say stop and you hit your hand really hard with the side of your other hand, which is the sign for stop, like it makes a noise. And I really wanted the sound mix to allow the audience to really participate in the intimacy of the language and the physicality and the sound your hands make when they brush up against your clothes when you're saying excited or the little verbalizations that come out or sounds that come out, which are so important. And so, yeah, the, I really worked not only to mic and my sound department on set, but then as we were working on the sound design to elevate and bring up all those small, intimate sounds to fill those scenes so you really didn't have to fill them with music. You got to be in the silence that wasn't actually silence.
0: Well, speaking of silence and sound, I want to talk to you about one of the episodes you wrote of Little America. (laughs) So your latest effort is the Apple TV show Little America. You co-show run the show with Lee Eisenberg, who created the concept for the show with Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon. And the first of the two episodes that you wrote in season one, it's an episode called The Silence, which changed rather dramatically from the first cut Um, It's a really surprising episode. It was actually the first episode I watched. So at first I was a little bit like, wait, what? What's happening here? (laughs) (laughs) What is this
2: show? It's the weird one from first season. So it's funny to start
0: with that one. I did because you wrote it and I, I wanted to, you know, get the whole sort of experience of it. So I have since read that it dramatically changed from that first cut. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the episode evolved. And I'm aware that we might be putting up some spoilers for those that might not have seen the episode. So if you are about to see it, you might not want to listen to the next five minutes.
2: Yeah, that episode. So I, uh, it's called The Silence. It's about um, a woman who comes to a silent retreat. And the whole episode is basically in silence for the first 10 minutes or so of the episode and falls in love with this man and has this kind of silent love affair that unfolds. But when I first wrote the episode, there are these kind of Dharma talks that happen at these silent retreats sometimes where they're, you know, the leader will will take you through kind of like a spiritual talk every day. So Zach Quinto was playing that leader um, who's an old friend of mine. And I talked him into coming to do an episode of Little America. I'm like, come and do this, you know. And he sort of gave these Buddhist kind of speeches through the episode. And so when we shot it, there was like a fair amount of kind of using this, these talks to do this sort of narration throughout and as we were editing, you know, Lee and I were in the editing room. Lee was like, you know, it's it's a silent episode. It's about silence. Like, should we just cut all this? And I, of course, had a moment of like, oh, my God, I'm going to cut all my friend's lines. I've talked him into <laughs> coming and doing this episode. And then I'm going to cut every single one of his lines. Like, that's a phone call that I have to make. But it was such an exciting idea to then go and go, oh, yeah, we can make this work. You know, it's the the whole point of the episode is kind of living in the silence. And it was interesting that I was making that episode in the lead-up to CODA. Like, I was starting to prep CODA as I was working on that episode, and I actually, you know, as I had started auditioning deaf actors for CODA, a lot of what I was hearing is, you know, deaf actors never get to play hearing. Like, not only is it wrong in so many ways when hearing actors go and play deaf roles, but it doesn't go the other way like deaf actors don't get to go and just play a hearing role but when i was directing the silence i thought oh this is a perfect opportunity for deaf actors to get to come and play hearing so i actually cast two deaf actresses in the whole retreat as part of the ensemble because you know nobody was speaking and it was all kind of physical and but it was really such an amazing lesson to see something evolve so much in the edit, like really take the footage we had shot and get to come in and kind of completely reinvent the episode in the edit and realize how much is possible editorially in terms of getting to rediscover your story and make a big swing on, you know, how you're going to do it. And that experience working on the silence was so valuable to me when I went into the edit on Coda because I think it had freed me up from a lot of ideas about, you know, oh, well, when I shot this scene, this is what I thought. It's like, well, I could steal that from that scene and that shot from that scene. I could build a whole new scene that never even existed. So it was very exciting, I think, creatively with my editor, Giraud, who also worked on Little America, to kind of get to go into the edit on Coda and feel really free in terms of now I have all this footage, I had all these ideas when I wrote it, I had all these ideas when I shot it, I get to come in fresh now, almost like I'm just discovering raw material that's here and what are we going to make with this? Um, And so my experience on The Silence felt very connected to, I think, a freedom that I had editorially once I went into working on Coda.
0: Little America is an anthology series and it's based on true stories that go beyond the headlines to look at real and unexpected lives of immigrants in America. How did you find all of these true stories?
2: It's an amazing process. I think the the way Little America is made is so unique and I've never seen anything quite like it or been a part. It's somewhere between journalism and narrative writing and we find people from all places you know I think some of them the show is made in partnership with epic magazine so we have journalists at epic who are doing a lot of footwork to go out and kind of find interesting people and most of the stories are not you know these are not famous people generally they're not people who kind of you would know they're small stories that are interesting that might have been in a local paper if they were anywhere, or they're not. They're just somebody's life that we find there's some small nugget of something captivating in there. So sometimes they come from like, you know, a friend of a friend or one of our writers has a friend. Sometimes our writers, it's their own experience. Um, Z Chun, first season, and Daria Zook, second season, both told their own stories. And so... Really what we're looking for, I think, is they're kind of funny and quirky and odd, you know, a lot of them. And together, I think, create a tapestry of the immigrant experience. And what I said early on is, like, you know, I had immigrant parents that both came here for such different reasons. My dad was escaping war. My mom was coming because she felt like she couldn't be fully expressed as an artist in Wales. You know, she had to be a good little Welsh girl and couldn't, you know, become... The kind of creative person she needed to be. And so both of those are valid reasons to come to this country. And both of those things have challenges and hardship involved in them. You know, the stakes might be different, but they're both interesting and worthy of being told. And so that's really our process is kind of, we find someone we think is interesting. We do a series of interviews. It can be up to like six or seven interviews sometimes where we're going back and I find that often what people think is the story of their lives is not the actual interesting story. So oftentimes with our subjects, they'll kind of put this thing forward that they think is the most fascinating thing about their story or their lives. And then you continue to talk to them. And then, you know, somewhere in the conversation, it's like, yeah, but actually I had this really weird relationship with my brother, you know, and they sort of brush over this thing but you as the interviewer kind of go, oh wait, you know, you do it well. So, you know, like you kind of go, what was that thing that you said about your brother? There seemed there was something there. And then you kind of go down that rabbit hole for a while. And so the journey of finding what the story we're telling is, is such a long, interesting process. And then we take all these interviews that we've had with this person and we go into a writer's room and most of our writers are either children of immigrants or sort of have That background themselves. And so we all kind of, we're like talking about the stories and dissecting them and kind of going, is this it? And then we go back and we re-interview the people to try to dig down that channel. It's such a cool, evolving, amazing process. And I love where we get to. And then it's so intense when we show our subjects, the episode, which I just had that experience on Little America season two is, you know, finishing the season before it came out, we screened The episode individually for people so they could kind of watch it Mm. in private and have a reaction to it. And it's so intense, you know, it's so intense because you feel as a writer and, you know, showrunner and creative, you've been trusted with people's lives. And these are not people that are Hollywood people that are used to putting themselves out there. So it's kind of very vulnerable act for them to talk to us and share some of the stuff they do. And they don't know what we're going to end up telling a story about. So I think there's always this element of surprise that like, that's what you saw or that's what you heard in my story. It was so beautiful to show these episodes to the subjects. It was one of the most powerful parts of making the show was just having these little private screenings with just me and one person and, and showing the episode and kind of talking to them afterwards about it. It's very beautiful because they're normal people who, who haven't been recognized in that way. And I think there's often a feeling of, oh, is my story worthy? Like, is my life a life that, that is worthy of being told? And, and that's such a cool aspect to the show. I feel like I'm, that's very raw because we just went through it and I just had all these screenings for the subject. So it was very cool.
0: Well, that's what makes, I think, this this whole anthology so special. You could be watching somebody from Belize or Sri Lanka or Japan or El Salvador, and you can relate so much to the experiences because it's not just about being an immigrant, although that's certainly a part of it, but it's also about being so human and how we all struggle with our relationships with our parents or connect with our children and I'm wondering if the commonalities surprised you. I mean, I do I do visual storytelling workshops all over the world, and I find that no matter where I go, I could be in Dubai, I could be in Mexico, I could be in Japan, and everybody's telling the same stories, love, loss, longing.
2: Well, we're all horrible and we're all people. Yeah, <laughs> but, there we go. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think it really teaches you that, specificity leads to universality when you are so specific and you are able to create authenticity with everything surrounding a theme or an emotion or in a way that theme or emotion is allowed to fully reveal itself as being powerful because Maybe you're watching someone from another culture than you speaking another language than you. And so it feels like there should be this distance or you you feel like there should be this sense of other. And yet you're like, I know that feeling in all of these conversations about diversity. There's I feel like there's this idea like, oh, it's important to learn about people from another culture because that's a good thing to do is learn about people that are different from you. And I think what diverse storytelling does is show us that we're all the same, is show us that we all care about love, that we all care about getting approval from our parents, that we all care, like, because those things transcend culture and language and all those things. And so, yes, I love that part of Little America that you are watching an episode, you know, about a Sri Lankan girl in a kiss a car contest. And it seems like what a silly contest to kiss a car for as long as you possibly can. And I'll, I'll say she what She did it for 50, about, 50 hours. <laughs> 50 hours. She made so, it. <laughs> and this is what I mean as a writer, too, or as a, like, you, you're drawn to that story because you're like, oh, this is quirky, right? It's a girl in a kiss a car contest and she kisses a car for 50 hours to win the car. And then the more we talked to the subject, the more it became clear that Her parents had come to this country from Sri Lanka with incredible expectations for her. Um, Her father was an engineer in Sri Lanka and was working as a janitor in the U.S. So all of his expectations, hopes, dreams of what this country was going to fulfill got placed onto his daughter, who was kind of wayward and feeling like a loser and couldn't keep a job and you know, the weight of those expectations was actually paralyzing. And then this kiss-a-car contest, which should have been this silly thing that she chose to participate in, took on huge emotional stakes because it felt like her chance for redemption and it felt like her chance to suddenly be something in her father's eyes. So I love that, that we unlock it as a writer's room. We kind of go, what is this about? What is this about? You know, and and you talk a lot and you kind of go, oh, my God, I think this is about redemption. This is about this woman who feels like a failure seeing a path to her father's approval. And then once you have that, you can kind of have all the silly characters. You can have the um, characters that participate in these kind of endurance contests, but you've unlocked the thing at the center, which is that very universal feeling. And so each one of the episodes really feels that way to me, that we we spend a lot of time going, okay, this happened, but what did it mean? Like, what did it mean to this person? And generally, the episodes end up being very moving because they do resonate. They hit some inherent universal human emotion, I think, that we've all gone through at some point, be they family, whatever it is, you know, kind of the, the essence of what it is to be human and try to make it through this weird, messed up world. <laughs> There's so much more
0: I want to talk to you about Little America. I'll I'll just leave it as saying that the first three episodes of season two are just required watching for all humans. Mr. Song, Ninth Caller, Bra Whisperer, some of the best television I've seen in a very long time. But speaking of being human, I read that... Possible next project for you is adapting disability activist Judith Human's memoir, "Being Human." And I read that Ali Stroker, the first actress to appear on Broadway using a wheelchair, who won in a, a Tony for her role in Oklahoma, might be starring in it. Is is any of that true?
2: <laughs> All of this is true. All of this is true. Okay. I I found Judy. Yes, I mean I think it's like what I was saying. I think I had such a massive education on Coda. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, which is just the massive lack of representation that exists regarding characters with disabilities and uh, centering that story. And also that the disability rights movement was a massive civil rights movement that nobody knows about. We didn't learn it in school. right? And when I saw Crip Camp, I remember being like, why didn't we know about this? Like you're sort of aware that there's more ramps than there used to be or that there's curb cuts now and there didn't used to be, but you don't understand that there was a very forceful and driven and ferocious group of activists that were working to make that happen. And Judy was kind of at the center of that. And she has such an amazing story and it's been so much fun to, um, I'm in the process of writing it right now, but just, talk to not only Judy, but everybody who was there. The 504 sit-in was the longest sit-in in in history, um, where a group of about 100 disabled people took over a federal building and held it for 30 days. And it's a wild story. So I've, I've been deep in kind of talking to people and researching and figuring out what went down and... It happened in 1977. So of course, everyone I'm talking to has a different memory <laughs> of the event. So it's been really funny to sort of talk to all these people and be like, oh, really? That's what you think happened? Because that's not the story that I heard this morning. <laughs> it's quite exciting. And so, yes, I've been I've been working with Judy on that. And it's a project that I feel very excited about. And, and also in terms of once I saw kind of the experience on CODA and like that we could transform the set and our way of working. And it's very important to me that the stories that I tell continue to center people who haven't been centered and push the envelope in terms of what conversations we're having as a culture and who we're including and who we're leaving out. And I think can also be very entertaining and funny as well. You know, it doesn't need to be take your medicine, eat your spinach. This is something that would be good to know about or good to watch. Like, I think these stories can be really fun and exciting. And so, yes, I'm very excited about that one. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait.
0: Sean, I want to close the show today with a quote of yours I found in my research that I think everyone in the world should hear. You've said that the day when you start having no self-doubt You're fucked. You should always be pushing yourself to be better than you are. To have people challenge your choices—that's what makes great work.
2: I'm happy to hear that quote from you because I need that right now. Honestly, I'm at the point where I want to like roll up my Oscar in like bags and like stick it under my couch because I can't look at it. (laughs) Because it's, it's, it's you're writing like a horrible scene and you're looking at the Oscar like, oh my god, do you know that I don't know how to do this? But I think living in that place of fear actually means you're making good work because you're pushing yourself into uncharted territory and that's a good place to live as an artist.
0: Yeah, that's what my therapist has been telling me. So I'm glad to hear it from you too. Um, Sean Hader, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. It was truly one of the best conversations I've had in a long time.
0: Thank you. You can see Sean Hader's films, Coda and Tallulah, on streaming services. Also, listeners, look up Dog Eat Dog on YouTube. You will not be unhappy about that one. (laughs) And you can watch Little America on Apple TV. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.